0: And so I now am quicker to go there when I feel like I'm in the ditch, when I feel like I'm just battling and struggling and upset and angry and all the things, the emotions that we have, I remind myself that, well, something good must be coming, man, because if I look back on my whole life, that's truly been my experience. It's good to win, but I don't know that I got much growth from it, but for confidence and there's nothing wrong with confidence, but you can't live on confidence alone
1: are you a follower of jesus that feels called to expand the kingdom of god through building and growing successful businesses if that's you then welcome to the kingdom capitalist show that interviews amazing christians using their business and money-making abilities to expand god's kingdom all over the globe i'm your host ellis hammond and welcome to the show Welcome everyone to the Kingdom Capitalist Show. I'm your host Ellis Hammond, and I am uh, this this podcast show has been uh, so much of a joy for me to record over the last several weeks. I've gotten so many comments from you. Thank you for uh, just for your feedback. I uh, I don't think there is another show out there like this that is serious about sharing the stories of uh, established Christian entrepreneurs, business owners, real estate investors who really do see it. Um, as their calling, as their mission uh, from God to really build successful businesses, to really use their wealth for good. And so I'm um, I just i I'm so thankful for your feedback. Um, and I just want to remind you, if you're really enjoying this show, uh, please leave a five-star review. That helps us so much. This is free content that we get to put out to the world. And, and when you leave a five-star review, that helps me bring on incredible guests like the one I have today. Uh, because it shows that we have credibility, that people are enjoying this show, and so it helps us tell a message. And so please, after this show, if you would, just go to iTunes, scroll down to the bottom, and hit hit write a review. That would help us so much. And then secondly, before I introduce the, the guest, which I uh, will, um, we are – you know by the time I think this podcast show uh, publishes will be uh, hopefully right around January. We are launching our mastermind called Kingdom Capitalist, and this is a mastermind group that is for – um, entrepreneurs, business owners, real estate investors who are really serious about using their business, their wealth to really bring glory to God, to really find a community who wants to do that together. And so if that's you, uh, go to our website, the link will be in, our, uh, in the bio, and you can go there. And so, um, all right, without further ado, uh, I am so pumped about this episode today, uh, I have brought on, I have been introduced to um, someone who has an amazing story who is just a a real dude, like a real dude. I mean, I can't wait for you to hear his story. He's just a real guy who has just an incredible story, but not only that, um, he is an incredibly successful uh, Christian entrepreneur and business owner. Um, he is the CEO of Insurance Office of America. They are the 13th largest privately held um, private insurance company in the country, the 23rd largest insurance agency in the U.S. And I know he's going to get into this and tell us his story. But I just, um, I think it was so cool when he took over this this business his dad was doing. This was a family started company. His dad was doing about 70 million dollars in revenue, and he has taken. Uh, this, this business really to nail over $220 million in annual revenue. And so everyone, welcome to the show, Mr. Heath Rittenor. How are you, sir?
0: Doing well, Alice. I appreciate it. Good to be with you.
1: Yes, man. So tell our audience just real quick where you are in the world. Yeah, I live right
0: outside of Orlando, a suburb called Longwood.
1: Okay, awesome. And so talking about real, I want to kind of poke at you a little bit because I know you went to a rival university, Liberty. I went to a small school in the southeast called Presbyterian College. We both played football there. Yeah. So uh, what, what position were you at, at Liberty? I was a running
0: back. And okay. there's an interesting story how I ended up there, if you want to get into it. It's, it's I,
1: I want to hear it, absolutely. The, the, the audience would love to probably hear that.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, man, I was, um, I had a pretty good career in high school, and I was an all-state player here at Lake Brantley, and I wasn't a great student. I was all about the girls in the party. I was a knucklehead, but I was super passionate about football. Um, Early in my senior year, I had our local university, UCF, um, recruit me and tell me that, hey, man, you know, we want you to come here, uh, but you got to get your grades up by the end of the year, and they gave me a goal, and they said, if you do this, we'll save you a full scholarship, and so, I knew my grades weren't so hot because I didn't try too hard, and I thought, you know what, I know I'll do my part, so um, as I went through my senior year and I started to perform well, uh, both in football and in my grades, uh, I stopped taking any phone call from any other university because, you know, I felt like they made a commitment to me, and I was going to honor my side, and sure enough, the end of the year, um, I got my grades up. I did what I had to do, and they told me, you know, Heath, uh, we can only save you a partial scholarship. Oh, um, and they actually saved a full one for another bad student who ended up being a much better player than me. It was Dante Culpepper. So, um, but I was angry. I didn't take the partial scholarship. And I said, you know what? that's now, hard to
1: compete know. with Dante Culpepper. Everybody knows football. I mean, come uh, on, man. That's, you know, yeah. that's, <laughs> they might've made a, I don't know. They might've made a good decision. You know, that's hard to, <laughs> I'm not arguing that I was better
0: than him. I was <laughs> running back he was a quarterback, but I felt like there was a commitment made and I turned down a lot mm-hmm. of other opportunities. Right. So, Um, I then started sending out my highlight tape in the summer when most scholarships were already given out. And I had three options, um, Appalachian State, McNeese State, and Liberty. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I chose Liberty, it really wasn't because I was a Christian. It was because they played UCF. Oh, wow. (laughs) I wanted that opportunity to play my home team in the Citrus Bowl. And my freshman year, we beat Dante Culpepper seven to six in the Citrus Bowl in Orlando.
1: No kidding. That's amazing. I didn't do much.
0: I I returned one kick and was on the kickoff team, so I can't take any credit for it. But I got to tell you, it felt good.
1: You were on the field. That's all that matters. That's awesome, man. That is so cool. And and for anyone who um is you know on the YouTube channel, I think we're going to put this one our first episode on YouTube, Heath. So that'll be pretty cool. He's got a ton of football memorabilia. Um, he I know that he's a big Pittsburgh fan, and so I want to get into your story a little bit because I know it actually starts in Pittsburgh, right? I mean, that's that's why you're a Steelers fan, and so. Um, you know, your, your dad started this insurance company, but you know, you guys, you guys grew up, or at least let me just, let me put it over to you and you tell our audience a little bit about kind of your background and growing up in Pittsburgh.
0: Yeah. I'll tell you a quick humble beginnings. Um, my parents both come from very humble beginnings. Actually, my father was the youngest of six kids that lived in the projects of Pittsburgh, um, outside of, um, the city McKeesport. It was the steel capital of the world. Um, and my mom, we call her the rich one, you know, she grew up in the trailer park down the street. Um, so, you know, my parents were together from almost, you know, junior high all the way up through been married for almost 40 years now, but um, i I grew up there and, you know, it was a little bit of an edgy, um, place when I was growing up. It was a little, um, certainly a lot edgier than it was here. Um, but it was a good upbringing, you know, it was a lot of good, hardworking people. I learned a lot there and I obviously started going to Steeler games as a kid and fell in love with not only the game, but my team. Um, so I usually get to go back once or twice a year to go to a game, see family, eat some real food, um, which we don't seem to have as good of everything here in Florida is a chain, everything up there is a multi-generational mom and pop restaurant that I miss. But mm. yeah, so, I, but I really only lived in Pittsburgh till I was nine. We moved here when I was nine years old.
1: And so you moved to Orlando with your pops, your parents, yeah. um, where did your dad get the, or, you know, where did he get the idea or even the funding to, to go out and kind of start this business?
0: Well, he, backstory on that was my dad was working in the steel mill. um, And, you know, for an uneducated guy, that was about the best job you could get where he grew up. And his frustration, Ellis, came from, he wanted to be, he had the lowest level job. He was the guy in the blast furnace. And his idea was, you know what, I'm going to crank out more steel than anyone in this whole place. And maybe someone will notice me and I'll get a promotion and get off the blast furnace. Hmm. And what he quickly found out was that's not how it worked. Um, after his first week on the job, he got, he got called into the union boss's office. He got yelled at for making the other guys look bad, and wow. he was cranking out too much steel. Um, so a blessing of that was he walked away from the best job he could find, and the only job he could find other than that was selling life insurance door-to-door on what's called the debit. Now, back then before technology, that was when you were selling little burial policies, five ten thousand dollars $10,000, and you would go and sell them in the projects that you grew up in, to families, and they would literally pay you in cash every week. And so he would drive around with a couple of Dobermans in his car, make sure he didn't get robbed, and he would go collect his cash every week. Insane. And um, that's how he got his. He fell backwards like most people do in the insurance business. Um, and then really, the transition into Florida was when the economy crashed in Pennsylvania when the steel mills closed. Um, he felt like there would be a better opportunity um, to come to a, a more up-and-coming economy. And so Orlando at the time, outside of Disney was just getting started. You know, this was the mid eighties. Um, so took a shot, came to Orlando, um, and moved here and tried to get a start here and had a lot of difficulties doing so, but it's been a tremendous blessing. since.
1: Wow. And so your, I mean, let's, you know, your, your entry, your pathway into the real estate world. Was that something that was kind of natural? Like, Oh, my dad's in this business. I should, you know, this, this this is an easy kind of transition for you or what was By your introduction into it?
0: mean, First of all, I mean, I, I remember leaving college and I was home for the summer. and I remember telling my parents, I said, you know, and this was in 96 and, and um, we we're a small company. We had about eight people. And I just, I remember telling them, I said, you know, I don't know what I want to do, um, but maybe while I'm home, I know what I don't want to do. That's being the insurance business like they were. But I said, maybe while I'm home for the summer. I can go out with our, our eight partners and maybe they'll take me to one of their customers during a renewal meeting or a new business presentation. Because the one thing about our business is we insure white collar, blue collar, sports, restaurants, you name it. And so I thought, maybe I'll meet an industry that I'm passionate about and I'll either go back to school for that or I'll try to get a job right away. And truthfully, what I quickly found out was, you know, I had the misperception about insurance, right? I thought, oh, who would want to do that? Use car sale right up there with that. And And what I quickly found out, Ellis, was um, well, I, and this is the truth. We had eight partners and of the eight, there was, there was this line of demarcation down the middle, right? There were four that were absolute, I would say, policy peddlers right up there with used car salesmen. They didn't um, bring a lot of value. They sold only on price. They weren't consultative. They really didn't put the client first. They were all about just dropping off a policy and coming back in 12 months. Um, but on the, on the flip side, I saw these other four partners that were everything that an and, and, and advocate is. You know, the clients looked at them like a trusted advisor, an attorney, a CPA, a partner. Um, so at the end of the summer, now this, this may not sound good, but it's the truth. I did not feel like at that age, as young as I was, that it was going to take me many, many years to look and be as professional as the four experts that we had. Um, but frankly, I saw the other four partners that I was not very impressed with. Um, and frankly, I saw that they made a pretty good living. And I knew that um, I didn't have a lot of talent. I didn't have a lot of um, experience. But I knew one thing, and the reason I had a lot of success in sports, and I get it from my parents, is I work hard. And so I just thought, I told my dad at the end of the summer, I said, you know, it scares me to be full commission. I know i got to do the 100 cold calls a day and walk-ins and all this stuff that I know how difficult it is. But frankly, if those four can do what they're doing, I think it's sometime, if anything, just through sheer grit, I think I can do well. And then maybe in the future I can someday look like you and the other three partners right. that, are, that are advocates and true professionals. And mm-hmm. so I jumped in in 96, and I've never looked back.
1: Wow. Can, um, I'll use that word advocate. I know we're going to get into this a little bit, but um, no, I'll go ahead and ask it because I might forget later. How would you define an advocate? Because that seems like knowing the culture of your company, how is that different from, yeah, what maybe typical people think about an insurance person is you know that you're using the used car salesman, so we can go with that. But can yeah. you define that a little bit more clearly?
0: Yeah, to me, an advocate is, hey, I've got my client's best interests at heart, even if I make less money, that I'm there for you not to drop off a piece of paper once a year with good terms and conditions, that insurance policy, that I'm here on a Tuesday night when your your building burns down, when your employee got sent to the hospital with a major work comp claim, that I'm truly there for you and have your best interests at heart whenever you need me, not just once a year, and that I'm here to help you mitigate risk, also help you run a better business. That's what a real insurance professional does. The piece of paper, the policy to me is the minimum standard. Everyone that does what we do should be able to bring a good piece of paper with good terms and conditions. It's all of those other things you put around the policy or what I believe make us unique and special. And that truly means putting the client first. Because if you do that, even if you make less money in the short term, you retain your clients and in the long term you win. And we're in a long term game. We're a generational business and we don't have a, a short term mentality.
1: Yeah, no, that's so huge. Um, Well, so so let me ask you. So you so you found some success as a salesman. I did, right? Uh, And and did you decide to stay? You did. So you kind of stayed in the company after college.
0: I did. I started in '96, and I'll kind of tell you that story. I, you know, the first year I was awful. I made a hundred calls a day, got hung up on ninety-nine times. I was depressed. Frankly, I'm thinking, man, this is awful. And most of the people I was trying to present to. Uh, Most CEOs or CFOs were, you know, almost twice my age, if not more. Um, So I had a lot of at-bats and I I swung and missed an awful lot of times. And, but again, I just continued to just keep going and keep going. And then after a number of years, I learned how to ask for referrals. I learned how to build better relationships and, and grew my book of business. Um, And then fast forward um, 12 years in, so let's see 2008, you know, I'd been here for 12 years um, and I had built up a, a million dollar book of business. So I was one of the top producers in the company. Um, doing extremely well, and I was only 31 in 2008. Um, and at that time, my father was chairman and CEO, and we had a, a president named Dave who was had been with us quite a long time. And Dave sat down with my dad and I and said, You know, guys, love Die Away, getting ready to transition. I'm an empty nester now. I want to give you six months' head start. This was January of 08. And he said, You know, in June, my wife and I are going to retire, and we're going to spend six months overseas. Um, and, you know, our kids are out of the house, so I want to give you six months' head start or notice. Um, and so we said, great, Dave, you've been a blessing. We love you. And, you know, we left that middle, we'll throw you a party. And we left that room. And my dad said, hey, son, come here. I said, yeah, yeah, what's up, pop?" He said, you know, you built your book organically. Um, you know, you built it the right way. You're not entitled. You never took a salary from the company. People here respect you, all that stuff. And he said um, he wanted to transition from CEO chairman to just the chairman's role. He told myself he thought I'd be a good CEO. And he thought Jeff Lagos, who's our president today, today would be an excellent president. Um, And I looked at him and I said, not no, hell no. And sorry if that that offends you. That's what I said. Um, And he said, what do you mean? I said, dad, first of all, I'm a sports guy. I'm a sales guy. Uh, We had a $70 million business at the time with about 500 employees. And and it was 2008. I mean, my, my book of business was melting down. I had a lot of construction clients that the year before were booming and in 2008 had no work. So my income got cut in half. Um, and I just frankly felt inadequate. I mean, I literally was scared of the job. I was scared of the macro economy. Um, and so I told him no. And then, I mean, maybe another month or two went by and he brought it up again and I flippantly had the same response. I said, you're not, no heck no. I, don't, I don't, I'm not interested. I'm scared of the job. It's just too big for me. Um, and so then man, literally I'll, I'll fast forward. We're like, I don't know, two, three weeks maybe before Dave's retirement party. And my dad called me in his office and said, Hey, hey son, can we chat? Sure. What's up? He said, will you do me a favor? Sure, dad, I'll I'll do anything for you. What's up? And he said, you know, I would never ask you to take on a job you don't feel led to do or called to do. He said, but I will ask you to just do one thing for me. And if you don't feel led to do it or called to do it, I'll never ask you again, but would you just pray about it? And I thought, man, you know, I'll pray about it, but I don't want to do it. I'm scared of it. I'm inadequate, all that stuff. But so I, I go home that night and I'm literally sitting in my kitchen and it was one of those things, and and I'm, a, I'm in a relationship with Jesus, right? I'm not this overly religious guy, so I'm having this out loud conversation on my on my kitchen counter, kind of like, just like this, you know, come on, God, I'm 31, I'm, I'm inadequate, it's too big for me, I know what the responsibility looks like, my book of business is melting down, the economy's melting down, and I guess it I'm being honest, right, like part of me wanted the rebuttal, like, no, tell me I'm the guy. Right.
1: That's not at all what,
0: what I got, what, what I felt like was spoke to my heart so clearly, it was like. Well, if, if not you, who?
1: Mm-hmm. And honestly,
0: Ellis, for the first time, I started to think about, I watched my parents sacrifice to build this thing um, on a $10,000 loan from a community banker that bet on my parents when they should have never qualified for that loan. And so here we are with a $70 million business and I'm praying about it. And when I felt, when I heard, if not you, who? I started to think about what the business would look like because there were two other gentlemen um, that sat on our board of directors at the time that were very large um, partners in the company. And I know, I knew then, both of them really wanted to sit in the chair that I sit in today. And I believed in my heart, honestly, that that they wanted it for all the reasons I didn't. And I felt like it was the wrong reasons. I felt like they, they saw the authority and the accolades and the, the income potential and all that. But what I didn't think they recognized, you know, was the responsibility of it all. I didn't think they recognized that, you know, at that time, the decisions that came from this chair affected 500 families and the economy was a wreck. And, and so... I just was just challenged with the thought that they would want it for the wrong reasons. And eventually they would change our model and get a little bit change. We've built this thing to be the antithesis of greed. And what I mean by that is I have salespeople every year um, that out earn myself as the CEO because we don't cap anybody. And so we have folks that are millions of dollars a year in commissions and every year, some of them do out earn myself. And I really felt like in that night when I was praying about it, that, Those two gentlemen, if they sat in this chair, and all of a sudden, it would probably be an ego hit to them, or they wouldn't be comfortable, and I felt like they would start to trim and change our model a little bit to make us look like our peers, because what we've always said is, look, we're different in an industry of sameness, right? And I just felt like in that night that I had no confidence in myself. I I felt worse to see everything that my parents sacrificed to build be changed and have the culture change, because culture is everything in a business. Um, And so, and after, I don't know, back and forth with God that night, I just kind of felt like he was clear with me that, Hey, I won't leave you. I won't forsake you. I'll surround you with the right people. I'll be with you. And so I was scared. Um, but I woke up the next morning and I walk in and grabbed a cup of coffee and sat down with my dad. I said, you know what? I'll do it. I'm scared to death. I still feel totally inadequate, but I do trust God. And I believe he's going to be here with me um, and surround me with the right people. And I don't want our culture to change. So as much as I feel the way I feel, I want to do it, and I feel like it's for the right reasons. Um, so I did. I transitioned in uh, June of 2008 into the role I'm in, and then we continued to have a terrible year in from June of 08 until the end of 08. And so here I am at, in December 31st or January 1 of the next year, and I'm sitting there like kind of angry at God being honest with you. I'm kind of like, come on, man. You told me you surround me with the right people. I just went through six months in the job. First year in the company's history, we shrunk by over a million dollars in revenue, Um, again, knowing what I know now, it had everything to do with the macro economy, but man, at the time I'm feeling under it. I'm like, you know, I'm feeling like people got to be looking at, you know, the young man's blowing up the business and I'm feeling the weight of that. And, and I'm just really down. And, um, and all I can tell you is in, in, in 2009, I take no credit for this. God just showed up. I mean, we ended up recruiting people that were at a level that we had never recruited before. Um, I remember shortly after 09 started, we had one of our producers write an account that was alone a million dollars in revenue to offset shrinkage <laughs> the year before. Shortly thereafter, one of our other partners wrote an international company that was almost nine hundred thousand in revenue. Well, we proceeded to grow by six million dollars in revenue in 2009. Not only did it offset the million dollars we shrunk the year before, but the two gentlemen that wanted to sit in the chair that I sit in decided to leave. And they took $4 million of revenue with them. So we offset the million that we lost from the year before and the 4 million that they took. And we grew by over 6 million in 2009. And again, I give myself no credit for that. That was God showing up and sending us the people and really being there in my biggest moment of need at that point in my life. I've had substantial needs since then and issues since then. But it's one of the biggest moments of my life where I was like, he can be faithful. He's trustworthy. He does. He's always there. You know, when I'm sitting there in January, and I go, where are you? You know, where are you? I didn't even want to do this job. And so God showed up.
1: Kids, wow, that's incredible. Let me ask you this because what you just shared right there, if there's some younger listeners, and I know that there are many, like that is so against the culture that we live in right now, which says do what you, you know, do what makes you happy or do what's good for you. And I think the message you just shared there is that's actually not the question you were asking. The question you were not asking was, God, what 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 should I do? You were asking, what should I do? But it wasn't in the sense of, like, what's going to be the best thing for me? What's going to make me happy? Can you expound on that and maybe how your faith or even how you had the, I don't know, like, why were you not asking that question? How come you weren't asking the question of, well, what what what's in it for me, God, or, or well, I don't really want to do this. Why would you be calling me to something that I don't want to do?
0: I guess the thought of having everything that was sacrificed before me to build, the thought of having the core values and culture of that change and become the opposite of what it was set out to be, that was more powerful of a driver than the fear and the not wanting to do it and the being fearful of the responsibility and the economy and all those other things to watch what what I saw my parents build go in a totally different direction, that would have been more painful for me than the fear and everything else. And so the thought processes of what I wanted to do, um, you know, I learned kind of early on having success in sales that if you just fly after every want, you end up buying a lot of stuff, you end up with stuff, but you know what, stuff doesn't make you happy and flying after every whim of what I want doesn't always make me happy. Um, And I just felt like walking away from building something that was so different um, that had a generational aspect to it and, uh, uh, the antithesis of greed culture was so special to me. And I believed in it so much that that overcame any of those, you know, interpersonal feelings of what I really felt like I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then good. I learned later, um, that God changes your wanter. And I'll give you one quick example on that. Um, when I first became CEO, not being a finance grad, right. I sat there and I thought I sat down with our CFO who was a Wharton, uh, finance graduate. And I told Wes at the time he's since retired as well. And I said, Wes, I don't want to be the CEO in the room. We're going over the financials and I just go, "Uh uh-huh. And I don't really know it like you know. So let's spend two hours every Friday together. And I want to read every book you read in college. And I want to pick your brain. I want you to coach me and teach me. And I thought, honestly, I got to white knuckle it because I wanted to do it to be the CEO I was supposed to be. But this is God changing your wanter, right? I started to do it and I got a passion for it. Mm. I stopped spending every waking moment when my wife or kids weren't around watching sports. It started to be on a Friday night when they're in bed, reading finance, listening to podcasts. You know, I was reading those books that Wes gave me where I literally had to Google like every third word because I didn't even know some of the terminology. Uh, But it sparked a a fire inside of me that I never knew was there. And so sometimes, you know, God changes your wanter and there's things in store for you that you don't know are there. And so I just went down that road and there, there burned this fire in me that I just never knew existed.
1: (laughs) That's awesome, man. And and tell our audience a little bit. So like, That God has got changed that you begin to really focus on this and and really begin to own this and create this and so from 2009 to where you are now it's a pretty big shift in revenue. You said you took it over at 70 million. I said in the beginning 220 million. I mean, tell me about that real quick.
0: Yeah, and and just like in 2009, um, he's continued to send us quality people. Um, Our whole model isn't about acquisition. Most of our peers are in the acquisition mode. They lever up, they buy a company, they cut out costs to get a return, then they go do another deal. Um, we believe in organic growth. Um, we believe in a culture that's wildly attractive, but also a culture where both our people and our clients never want to leave. That's our why. Um, and so really in the midst of from 2009 till this, this year, 10 years later, it's all been a focus on if you take care of people, your people and your clients, good things happen over the long term. And so, you know, the passion that I got for finance transitioned into a passion for technology and a passion for utilizing new and innovative ways in our business to do things better, to bring a better customer experience, um, to make things more efficient. Because I will tell you, the insurance industry still looks like it's 1985. We still use too much paper. It's still very latent. Things are slow to change. And typically in our industry, when you talk about it, people in our industry, yeah, that's the way the business works. Well, that's ripe for disruption. And so we're a big part of that right now in our industry because there's not enough AI used in our business. There's not enough software and efficient processes in place. Many things are done the way they were 20, 30 years ago. And so we've made major investments and shifts into that area. And it's helped us take market share and also provide an opportunity for quality producers and employees out there that are in our business to come to a place that not only has a unique and a very special culture, but also brings a lot of value and unique tools to our customers that wrap around that insurance policy, right? The policy is just the commodity piece. Everything else is what makes us sticky. And so that's really where the growth has come from. And it really came from that start off, that starting moment and, you know, trying to learn finance. And it, it, it created this kind of intellectual or this, this curiosity um, that I really hope my kids have. You know, I was asked recently, what's the one thing I want for them is to be intellectually curious because that led me down all these other areas in tech in different ways um, that have really been needle movers for the company. Um, so, you know, I started off as the culture guy and I, I will always say that comes first, but it's really God led me down roads of, you know, just technology and, and better ways and more efficient ways of doing things that, that are game changers in our business.
1: How do you, going back to the culture piece, because I know that is such a huge part of kind of your success and this organic growth, um, how, you know, the faith that your dad had, you know, your faith in God that you have, how does that come out in this culture? You know, I mean, as you think about being a real kingdom leader and, and owning and operating this business, how, well, how is that kind of influencing the culture that you're building at IOA?
0: Well, one of the things we say is I first off at every one of my speeches at our national sales conference, first of all, we start off with a prayer. But then I follow our pastor and I open the meeting and say, hey, I want everyone here to know that just because I, I'm, a, I'm a christian and we run the business on timeless truths or christian principles right but that does not mean this is business not church you're welcome here and you're wanted here and you're valued here if you have integrity you work hard and you do right by our clients but i hope you don't get offended if we pray because it is who we are and it's what we're going to do uh, but i don't want anyone to feel like that they have to believe the way i do spiritually politically or any other way to be successful here and, in, and frankly, and I think that's attractive. And I think that's like Jesus, you know, I, I want to hang around everybody. I want them to see him in action in our business and how we do things. Um, so that's kind of how we do it. We don't hide from it, but yet we don't shove it down anyone's throat either. As I just think that's a bad way. Uh, I don't, that's just not the way to, to right. share it.
1: Yeah. More so than kind of what's up front. I know we had talked before, even kind of the way that you model stock options and things like that. Like, Can you talk? I mean, because I think just think that's so cool that I don't know. I think I think even talk about that a little bit how you're really treating your employees and the way that's coming out. Because you talk about the, you know, I love that line. You said difference in an industry of sameness. Let's talk about how that is happening inside your company, and then I would love to maybe dive in how that's happening outside of your company as well. Cool.
0: All right. Well, what we mean by that, first of all, five percent of our company is owned by our service employees, and we gift them shares every single year. They don't pay for them. Um, The other, the rest of the business is owned by our producing partners and our leadership team, and they're able to buy stock in IOA based on their production and or their performance. So our largest shareholders have nothing to do with how long you've been here or what your last name is. It has everything to do with what you bring to the table on an annual basis. Based on your performance, you're able to buy a certain amount of the shares outstanding every year. Um, You don't have to, it's an option. Um, So it's truly fair in that way that you know, a lot of companies—it's—it's it's a longevity thing, or it's a—you know—maybe you're friends with, or you got a certain last name, and, and really, what we built here is—you earn your opportunity to—to to buy shares in the company, and it's based on performance rather than tenure or you know some other subjective decision.
1: Right, that's huge. And then, and then, you know, as a as a client, let's say, uh, you know, I'm coming in to buy insurance. How how might I experience that culture?
0: Well, I'll tell you what's very different in our industry. Um, almost all of our competitors in the top 100 brokers. There's a bunch of Wall Street and private equity firms, and there's three of us that are truly private in the top 100. We're one of three, um, so it enables us to have a long view. I don't have to overreact if we have a uh, if if we don't hit our numbers this quarter. Um, I can invest in things that have a two, three, five year payback. That if it impacts our quarterly earnings this quarter, it doesn't change direction. I think sometimes or a majority of the time when you live in the PE world or the Wall Street world, you may not have the ability or have the blessing to be able to invest in something that doesn't bear fruit for the next few years because if you don't perform this quarter, you may not have a job. And so that's one of what I call is a huge advantage for us, uh, both culturally and in the things that we can build for our clients. And and culturally, I'll give you an example. In 2008, uh, when a majority of our industry had crazy across-the-board cuts, commission cuts, employee cuts, benefit cuts. We literally made almost no changes. Uh, We just made a conscious decision that we were going to earn less money and hold on to our people and grow into them from there. And so being private enables us to be able to have a long view and enables us to focus on our people and our clients first, knowing that if we do that, we retain good people and we retain our clients. And in the long term, we win and we're playing a long game. It's not a short term focus like many of our competitors have to live in that world. And I don't blame them for that. It's just the world they live in. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just we just do things quite a bit differently
1: here. That's so huge. Um, there's so much more, and we have time, so we have plenty of time. Uh, but I want to talk. If, if you know, if you're speaking to business owners, Kingdom Capitalists, that's a lot of people who, who are listening to the show. They own their own business, and um, they're you know they're still in growth mode. And so, you took your company from 70 million to 220 million. I I would just love to hear some takeaways. Um, you know, we've heard about. Um, being you know building a culture first but talk us through some of those big things that I mean to go from 70 million to 220 million in essentially what 10 years would you say yeah Um, if you know if if there's a company who's kind of in that mid-growth level right now and they're doing pretty well but they haven't quite figured out how to you know get over that 100 million mark what was the turning point or what was the the tipping point for you?
0: Yeah, I'll tell you, it was a number of different individuals that God put in my path that helped me see what I would say are my blind spots, right? I can tend to be type A, blinders on, I got goals, and I'm moving, I'm moving, I'm moving. And any leader of any business needs to surround themselves with people that are strong enough to point out blind spots, and then that CEO needs to be comfortable enough to know their weaknesses. And I know I can tend to be always focused on the next opportunities, aka a squirrel chaser at times. And I had to know that's a weakness of mine. And I had to learn from other good people around me, focus on the one biggest opportunity today and see it through and then move on to the next thing. And so it's it's about surrounding yourself with the right people, not yes people. It's about having folks that'll check you. And it's about having enough confidence to be told your idea stinks and you don't get offended by it. It actually makes you better. Um, and having folks that think differently than I do. Um, you know, diversity of opinion is huge. I mean, when y'all get in the room, and you think the same way. How are you going to do things different? And so I surrounded myself with another, a number of folks that, that truly have a different view on life when it just comes to how they see the world, not faith-wise. I just mean in how business works and things of that nature. And so in many cases, I was able to see things in my periphery that I otherwise, when I was running with the blinders on, type A the way that I am, I missed. And so as I grew in leadership and I started to surround myself with, with different people and truly asking more questions and truly checking myself, because um, I used to run solely on my gut and I'd pray about it and move on. But I'd sometimes miss some things. And so I would just say the biggest springboard for us um, was expanding our board, bringing on people um, that uh, that were had no agenda other than to make us better. And if that meant they told me my idea stunk, then so be it. I think that's healthy. So one of the things I say, um, I have a monthly lunch with about 30 employees every month and we rotate the company through. And one of the things I tell those employees, hey, I can't fix what I don't know is broken. It's okay if you call my baby ugly. And I I literally say it that way. I won't get offended. That's how you get better. They may tell me something I disagree with, but I'm foolish if I don't want their input. I'm foolish if I don't want diversity of opinion because the more of it I've gotten, I've seen blind spots. I found a better way to do things, not through my own idea, but my own willingness to listen to others and maybe think that there's another way to do a thing rather than the way I naturally do that makes sense.
1: Yeah, and just so I don't know if our audience caught this. So you say that every single month the CEO of a $220 million company has lunch with a rotating essentially round of 30 of their employees to listen to their complaints and their feedback.
0: Yeah. And and sometimes I get a lot of them. And, you know, <laughs> I'll tell you what else has been good about that, and this is other leaders need to hear this. There are a lot of employees in your company that unless you ask them, they're not going to tell you. You know, we found diamonds in the rough that way. We found folks that they come in every day, they do their job, they're great people, but they're never going to say, hey, I have an idea. This is a better way. Or why do we do things this way? How about this? And so when I started doing these lunches, um, we found diamonds in the rough. We found people that we thought could be in in better positions because they were brilliant. We just didn't know it. Um, And so it really shifted from me wanting to just have better relationships with our employees into, hey, what can we learn from them? Because guess what? Whatever it is they do every day, all day, I don't do that. I don't know their blind spots. I don't know our blind spots in that way. And so we've been able to find efficiencies. We've been able to find, and I even ask if you have a, if you have ways we can have more fun together, tell us as long as it's efficient and we still get the job done. I want people to like their work, right? I mean, 40% of our life is at work. People aren't happy. You don't keep on. Yeah. And so it's, it's, I have those lunches for more than just the culture. It's also been beneficial for the business because we found talent. We didn't know we had, and we've gotten some phenomenal ideas. And then with that, We created an idea contest for the entire company, and we said, all right, we're going to have a contest. Um, Idea, email address we had set up, send us your ideas, and we'll have a first, second, third place winner, 1,000, 2,500, 5,000 for the winner. Um, But then what we said is if anyone brings us an idea that actually helps us financially, we'll share the win with you. And I will tell you, we got some phenomenal uh, responses. I mean, it was something like 700 ideas. Um, we put a number of them into place and we still have other uh, 700, a long list as we we took the biggest opportunities first and we've worked our way down and we still got quite a few to go. But so that's been a needle mover for us. And so as much as it is good to get together with your people, break bread, build relationships, it's really helped the business in, in a different way than I even thought when we first started doing the lunches.
1: Yeah, that's so powerful, man. I, that, I mean, and I, I got it. I, you know, I got to talk about the mastermind because of what you just said. I mean, that's the whole point, right? Is because- You know, a lot of us, we have those blinders is that we only are focused on our business and we don't take the time to say, what am I missing? What are other people seeing? And so, you know, you were able to hire a board of advisors and put them kind of on your, you know, I don't know if I'm not quite sure exactly how you work that, but you were able to bring them into your culture and your company. Essentially, that's what we're doing. Like we're giving you a board of advisors who share the same faith, which I think is amazing because there's a trust level there but are just doing different things and can speak into what you're doing. I, I love that you did, you know, that's not what I was expecting you to say, actually. So it's really powerful that you said the way that you got from $70 million to $220 million was really being open, like putting the right people on the bus and yeah. then being open to hearing what they were saying. That's an 100%. incredible principle. 100%. Um, wow, that's really powerful. So you're doing well. Business is rocking. Mm-hmm felt like God has given you this passion it's growing but then I don't know what year it was but something pretty powerful in your life happened oh, yeah. that was kind of altering
0: yeah um, I'll start the story this way uh, Ellis every um, I'm a guy who I try to lift weights a couple of days a week to just stay in shape and I, every Saturday I still have a, a, a once a week Saturday morning basketball game I got I need a little physical competition in my life still mm-hmm. even though I, I get pain every three <laughs> four days after but Um, And I play with guys usually half my age in their 20s. But um, so one Saturday morning, like normal, I go out and I play really hard and I come home and and I was more sore than I normally was on a Saturday. And I just wasn't right. And I was taking a shower and had pain in my groin and my back. And and I happened to to notice I had a lump on my testicle. As embarrassing as that is, whatever it happened, I'll tell the story. And so I freak out. You know, I call the doctor. I go in and find out that um, I had testicular cancer. Um, and not only that, that it had spread to my lung. And oh, by the way, this was three weeks after I had a perfect physical. So had blood work the whole nine. Everything was great. I stay in shape. I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm doing really well. Business is good. Health is great. And so then this comes up and I'm devastated, uh, blindsided, freaked out. Um, and then when they found the spot on my lung and they said that it had spread, I knew not only did I have to have surgery, um, that I was going to have to do chemo. And I'm the kind of guy, honestly, that unless I'm really, really sick, I'm not taking meds. And so chemo, I mean, the thought of chemotherapy just floored me. Um, and so, you know, I just went through this this massive process, and this was in early 2016, of a guy who doesn't even take Tylenol when he's sick, now I've got to go take, you know, nine weeks of five days a week, five-hour days, chemo drip. Um, three of the nine weeks were that day, that way, and the other six weeks were just one day a week. Um But I'll tell you, man, looking back on that experience, um, at the time it shook me. I mean, you're having thoughts like, um, you know, I was, should I make videos so my kids remember me and I know I was going to be around and, you know, you just, life takes on a whole new meaning at that point. Um, But I will tell you for for a guy who, as I said earlier, can be type A and blinders on, that was such a blessing for me because in my life prior to that, besides the hurdles of jumping into the role in 2008 as CEO that scared me to death, I had never really felt truly vulnerable in my life, Um, and with this cancer thing, when I was in the middle of treatment, um, I literally, I always felt like in my life, you know, God's over here, he's on a shelf, I'm, you know, but I got it, I can get through it, I'll man up, I'll grind through it, right? Well, this was one of those, and I just, I had nothing, I had nothing left, I had lost 30 pounds, my hair fell out, and I'm literally just, and and this was a beautiful moment, that it was like, okay, God. I can't do it on my own. It, I, all I got is you. I need you. And one of the best things ever happened to me. Um, so I understood at that point. You know, I used to read um, Paul talk about, I boast in my weakness. And I used to think, what a fool that guy is. You know, who boasts in their weakness? And that's when it finally clicked to me. I was like, oh, my God. And him is where my strength comes from. And it just it shifted my entire perspective. Um, it gave me a passion for um enjoying the the things that I did take for granted like many of us do right your health and your family and your church your community and so now when I'm in the muck and I'm dealing with fires and drama like all of us have in our normally normal lives I really do fall back to this isn't cancer man this is like in the grand scheme of life whatever it is in front of me today yeah it's a big deal but it's really not when you look at through those lenses and so I've used that story, as embarrassing as it is, talking about nut cancer, right? But I've used, I've used that story um, uh, to benefit other people. I spoke about it at my church, and three of the people that watched it, um, my business watched it, and the church watched it, three people watching it found lumps on their testicles. One of them had, Two of them had cancer. Uh, one didn't. Um, one of them had uh, had a very simple surgery, and the other had to do some radiation. But, mm. So I feel like there was an opportunity for it to be used to be good. I now have a 24-year-old mentee. Um, that about a year ago, I get a text from my doctor as during treatment, he and I became friends. And I get a text a year ago, I hadn't talked to him in a while, and he just texts me, I need your help. And so I call him up. I said, hey, what's up, doc? And he said, yeah, I got a young man who played football at the same high school you did. Um, He's playing at Georgia Southern right now. And he just found out he has testicular cancer and it's spread to his lung. And he said, he's depressed, his mom's freaking out, he won't leave his room. And I said, man, I'll go drive to his house right now. And so I essentially finally connected with the young man. His name's Chris. And I said, listen, man, I know how you're feeling, but this is a gift. You're not going to die. You're going to learn from this. You're going to grow from this. It's going to make you better than you've ever been. I promise you. And so I just spoke life into the kid and we built a great relationship. I then helped him when he graduated, try to get a, a job. He got offered a job somewhere else. We went out to celebrate when he got his job offer and he didn't seem happy. And I said, dude, what's up? You know what? You should be fired up. It's a really good job out of college. You can move into Texas, not a bad place to live. And he just said, you know, Heath, it feels like a job and not, or not a career. And I said, well, what the heck do you want to do? And he said, you know, I, I don't know. Most of my parents are in sales and maybe something in sales. And I said, you know, I'll tell you what. I, I like you, but I don't want to put a, round, a square peg in a round hole. If you take assessments and it says you're cut out to do what we do, I'll mentor you and I'll work with you. Um, But I'm not going to make it happen unless it says you're wired to do this. And so he did. He joined us literally one year ago, January 1st, this year of 2019, actually. Um, And he's been here a year, and it's been a monster blessing. And now he is in a situation where he was embarrassed. He wouldn't talk about it. He was depressed about it. He now uses it for good. And so you talk about full circle. For me to watch this young man at 24 sharing it with people, talking about how he came to Iowa, talking about – um, his experience and how he's grown from the the most difficult experience in his life, and that is truly what's caused me to get to a place where. Um, here's here's a great great way to to explain what I'm trying to say. When I was in the middle of my chemo, I was sitting down with my son, and at the time he was nine. He's he's almost thirteen now, and I remember sitting at his bed and we're praying and and reading books like we would do together. And he was having a bad day in third grade, right? He was like telling me all the reasons he don't want to go to school tomorrow and all that kind of stuff and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm feeling like garbage, you know. I'm sitting there all worn out from the chemo and feel like trash and all that. And when he's telling me how bad his day is tomorrow, and it just hit me. And I was like, you know, bro, son, your dad's had some wins in his life, right? First in sports and then I've had some wins in business. But outside of confidence, I'm really not sure I got a whole lot of growth from my wins. Mm. Every bit of my growth has come from my failures, my challenges, my struggles, from cancer. And so it was like that was an opportunity for me to share with my son something um, that I felt like God used me in that moment. And I was able to have a deeper conversation with my son because of cancer, that he now has a, a breadth of understanding of things that were deeper, that you know we weren't having those conversations you know, a week before that or months before that when I wasn't diagnosed. So, And all that to say is I've learned that good really does come from bad. And that when you're in the midst of just the worst of it, and, and I don't know what to say with people dealing with worse things than I've dealt with and all that, but I can just only speak from my experience that in every bit of the difficulties in my life, somehow God has turned those, turned those situations into good. And so I now am quicker to go there when I feel like I'm in the ditch, when I feel like I'm just battling and struggling and upset and angry and all the things, the emotions that we have. I remind myself that, well, something good must be coming, man, because if I look back on my whole life, That's truly been my experience. It's good to win, but I don't know that I got much growth from it but for confidence. And there's nothing wrong with confidence, but you you can't live on confidence alone.
1: Yeah, suffering produces character. Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. There you go. And uh,
0: I have that verse in in my office at the house.
1: Yeah, that's so powerful, man. Because you you were going strong. You just got a perfect health report.
0: Three weeks before.
1: And then, and you know, all of a sudden you're put into a situation that you can't prepare for, that you don't have plans for. And what you've come out of and say, man, and, and this is another verse that, you know, I'm sure you're familiar with that God does work all things together for the yeah. good. Of those who love him are called according to his purpose. Correct. Uh, that's powerful, man. Wow. For a, and I think you said some of this, but for someone who's listening who maybe hasn't gone through cancer, um, things are going well, you know, and they're, they're crushing it in their business. Um, What reminder would you give to them so that, you know, I mean, I hope that no one listening on this podcast, and I'm sure you would say the thing, say the same thing has to go through testicular cancer. I hope no one on this podcast show has to go through that type of suffering, but golly, what comes out of it is so powerful. So maybe God might teach them through your story. So what would, what would you remind them of or tell them kind of going well, through that?
0: I'll tell you for me, um, I was not mature enough prior to cancer to learn from other people's challenges and struggles and situations like cancer. I would look at them and say, man, I'm sorry. And I would pray for them. And I would, I was sincere in that. But I always felt like, ah, cancer's for the other guy. You know, I'm strong. Our business is good. You know, and I would always just, I would never internally, you know, feel like, well, what if that was me? And I, I just, I was never, I just never took other people's challenges and applied them to what that would, how that impact, how it could impact my life. And so I've learned to do that now. I have empathy now that I didn't have. Um, and so I would just tell people that are killing it right now and life looks good. Hey, look, at some point, I mean, life rains on everybody, right? Jesus said that. You're going to have a bad stuff happen. It's going to happen at some point. I hope it doesn't, but it is going to at some point. But just know that when it does, good things can come from it. And, and you can use those things to, for the good of the kingdom and to help other people. Yeah. Um, and that's been the most fulfilling part of this whole experience for me is, again, when I'm watching that 24-year-old share his story, I mean, I get goosebumps, man. I'm like, that's God right there at work, man. Because that, like, that, that is him using bad for good. And it just nothing fills my cup like that.
1: Mm-hmm. That's so cool, man. Gosh, that's going to help so many people today. Like, they're going to hear this and they're going to be like, wow. Uh, the, the little thing that they're going through in their business, you know, or the little hiccup in their business, you know, what, what you went through, you know, that's going to hopefully give them perspective to say, okay, maybe this is not that big of a deal. But also, what can I learn from this? Like, this isn't just happening to me. This is happening for me, right? And how my guy really used this. Uh, This is producing character in me. This is producing hope. Um, And then I love what you said, hope for other people and not just for yourself. Mm -hmm. So you have two kids, I know, um, 12-year-old son, 8-year-old girl. Uh what do you what do you think as a kingdom capitalist, as a business owner, someone who is really performing at a high level? And the reason I mention them because I want to put them in a perspective of all this alongside of your company, what do you think is the biggest challenge for you as a kingdom capitalist?
0: Um you know, the biggest challenge for me, number one, is feeling like I'm able to do um all the things that I feel called to do, to be the husband and father that I want to be and still look after the business in the way that that I feel like I need to. Um but one thing that is non-negotiable is for me to not be the husband and father that I'm called to be because, again, when you go through something like cancer, you realize that success and money are fine. Um, But when you're worried about not being there for your kids and making videos so they remember you and all that, it really does put all of that stuff in a different perspective. So I've actually, since then, um, I still work a lot of hours, but I have really streamlined what I do, and I do my best, Ellis, to focus on being radically efficient when I'm in the office. Um, I, I, I spend less time just kind of having conversation and hanging around some coffee and all that. And I try to be intentional and focused while I'm here to get as much done as I possibly can. So when I'm not on the road, I can be home for dinner. Um, so I can sit down with my family and do the things that I know are much more meaningful in the grand scheme of life than I will ever be. Um, and it's massively important to me, this company, and I love it. And it is my family as well but it is, it is secondary to my relationship with God and my relationship with my wife and kids. Mm. So I would just encourage anyone who is burning it at both ends to build something. I've done that and there's nothing wrong. There's seasons for everything, but don't put your family on the back burner because if that blows up, you'll regret it so much more than any lesser success or lesser income that you may have in the long term when you don't have those relationships with your kids or your wife or your spouse. Um, nothing's worth that. And so I've just been much more intentional now about how I spend my days when I'm here so I can get as much as I need to done um, so I can get home and be the husband and father I'm called to be.
1: What are some tips? I, t- you said I love that, that phrase radically efficient do, do you have any like efficiency tips that we might be able to learn or practices that you think are really working well that we could we could put into practice?
0: Well one of it is uh, you know I always want to have an open door right and so I don't want to be the guy that is some ivory tower guy that doesn't take you know if my people have an issue I want to deal with it, I want to hear about it. Um, but I used to dive deep in everything, and now I learn to hear them out and then try to direct them to someone else that can help them so I don't take everything on myself, and I try to look at everything I do, Ellis, through, my, through the lenses of highest and best use. Um, it's kind of like earlier. I said I could have been a squirrel chaser, and I would do 10 things and not do them all very well, or I could do two things and do them with excellence, um, so it's been streamlining where I put my energy and attention Always through the lenses of, is this the highest and best use for me today as a CEO of IOA? And making decisions that way on a daily basis, um, not taking some meetings that I would have taken in the past and directing some of those meetings that I've taken to other people to handle. And you can do that when you surround yourself with good people. Uh, but really, again, highest and best use is a word I use a lot. I use it for our employees. I want every one of our employees focused on their highest and best use. That's how we can build a business. Um, And also when people are utilized in that way, they feel better about their job. They're doing what they're called to do anyway. That is their highest and best. So they're happier in it anyway. Um, But from an efficiency standpoint, it's that. It's looking at my list and when I scratch something off and add something to the bottom of it, is this really worthy of an hour today? Or is there a better use of that hour to move the business forward? And I try to consistently look at my day that way. Um, Where in the past, it was kind of like whatever came my way, I dealt with it at the moment. And we get distracted from whatever else I was dealing with. It might have been more important. And now I really have those lenses that I filter what I do through. Is this truly the best thing I should do right now for the business?
1: Mm. What have been uh, in growing your business and, you know, really this culture, and building this culture, uh, just some helpful books, you know, resources that you might be able to point others to? Is there any, like, I don't know, a couple couple key books that you've read or something like that?
0: I, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a big reader. I can, I can kind of go through my iTunes book right now and you'll laugh because it's pretty diverse. It's kind of like my, my music, um, which is quite diverse. Um, It's everything from finance books to um, uh, here's a negotiating book. I just read never split the difference, which was an awesome book. And and it was actually from an ex FBI um, chief hostage negotiator Um, tools for Titans. Um, I've read a book called the outsiders, which is interesting. It's about companies that Um, CEOs that built their business without Taj Mahal type home offices, more decentralized, very interesting culture type companies. That's a good one. Second Machine Age is a great book on technology um, that helped me understand how fast the world really is changing. You know, I think sometimes we, uh, you know, I gave this speech a couple years ago to my team and I said, you know, it was 2017 that was the 10 year anniversary of the iPhone. And I remember telling the team, I said, you know, if you think about it, 10 years ago, an iPhone came out. It was the first touchscreen phone, the app store, you know, now it's got a thumbprint ID and all that stuff. Think about this, though. In that last 10 years, you had the largest media company come Facebook, and they own no content. The largest transportation company was Uber. They don't own vehicles but for autonomous vehicles. Airbnb's largest lodging company. They don't own real estate. Um, And and Amazon, they bought Whole Foods. They have a store, the largest region, right? And so my point is, in reading that, it, it opened my eyes to, hey, man, this world is changing fast. And if we don't get ahead of this, we may get disrupted. And so it's really shifted uh, my mindset towards looking for blind spots in artificial intelligence, deep learning, machine learning, and all the things that are radically changing the world around us. And I think a lot of people in my space don't see it. And so that's become a passion of mine. I read a lot of tech now. I read up on blockchain. I'm very interested in um, the use of technology to do what we do better. I don't see it as a threat. I see it as a huge opportunity for the companies that embrace it. It does not scare me. I'm that one of all the books. I can give you a list even more. I've I've got some good ones, but that one really was a good one for me on the tech side because prior to that, I wasn't as focused on it. I was focused on customer service and value prop and customer experience and all those things are great, but if you get disrupted, how good are they? And so again, that's helped me look for blind spots in our business and we're in major development mode on the software side to do a lot of things in our industry right now that are desperately needed. Um, that I couldn't be more excited about. So yeah. that's, those are just some off the top of my That's uh-huh. huge,
1: man. and It goes back to being curiously or intellectually curious, right? And, um, and just being hungry to get better at your craft and, and, and kind of learn what's out there and kind of taking those blind spots off. Um, yeah, that's so huge. I, I there's a couple of books I, I love. I mean, I never split the difference. I think I've read that book three times now. It's just so good. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I highly recommend that one as well. Um, well, he, uh, I want to wrap up here, man. I'm just so grateful for your time. Uh, there, you know, there's um, still learning our audience in a lot of ways, but I know there are a lot of young people who listen to this mm-hmm. podcast um, who aren't who are kind of up and coming kingdom capitalists, you might sure. say, right? And so the idea of trying to get to 70 million to 220 million probably doesn't apply to them quite yet. But but I would love for you to maybe um, just have a moment, and if you could think back to your 22 year old self, okay. Yeah. Right, And and, and you're listening to a show like this, maybe, you know, because you are hungry, you're curious, you want to you want to figure out how do we really, um, really make impact or build wealth or whatever. What advice would you give to your 22 year old self today?
0: Well, I'll tell you one of the things I did back then, a little more, I was probably a little older than 22. But I looked for people that I was impressed by. Um, And then I would go and research everything I could about how they built their business had their success, what their culture, you know, what their values were and all that. Um, and I found a number from famous investors to executives in my industry um, and tried to figure out what made them so different. And and I realized, like, you know, you can take you build your own way, but you can take nuggets of gold from so many different people and kind of build your own thing um, it, it is, is a huge part of it. Um, and, and also, I would just encourage young people that it's just my goal is to improve a little bit every single day to try to do good and try to get a little better in, in at least one area. And it doesn't matter if it's $70 million or $7,000 this month or this year that you're building. It's about creating value for your clients and creating a place that your people not only want to be a part of, but never want to leave. And if you can create an environment like that, it will take care of your clients. And then in turn, your clients will never want to leave. And those are the foundational blocks that you can build on to get from 7,000 a year to 70 million a year to 200 million a year. And I believe, and this isn't, this isn't even a goal of mine. I want to go wherever God leads and I want to grow and healthy things grow. But I believe we're going to be a billion dollar plus company and we're going to take market share in this industry because of all the things I just said. Not because we're going to go acquire people, not because we're going to add value because we're going to do things the right way um, in a different way than my industry normally does. And so I just say, you know, that's, I want to do a little bit of good every day, try to learn, and improve what I'm doing a little every day. And then remember when you're in the midst of the muck good things come from it, you know, I try to stay positive as hard as that can be in the midst of it. And I know I've been there and I've spent my time in the ditch. And, um, so I, I just hope that's meaningful for some folks.
1: I think it will be. If, if people want to follow along on that journey, you know, you just threw it out there, a billion dollars, watch out world. Uh, how can they, you know, how can they either get in, get in touch with you or just follow along your journey? Um, or yeah. more about you at?
0: yeah i mean our website's iowausa.com. um i'm a guy it's strangely enough i have no social media um, i'm kind of one of those strange guys this in this day and age that isn't on it so you can't follow me anywhere there but i would take emails from any subscribers if they have a question for me um whether about the kingdom or their business uh, you know i feel like when god called me to this role and i and i'll give you let me give you one more example before i back up i used to feel like as an earlier christian when i didn't understand God's love for me. And I always felt like, you know, if, if I'm going to do God's work, I got to be in the ministry. I got to be, I got to go overseas in the mission field. I got to run a charity. I do something like that. And I feel like God was clear with me in 2008, right? That, that my platform is business mm. and that I can impact the kingdom much more from the seat that I'm in today than from some charity position, from some ministry position, because frankly, what I do, part of it is ministry, you know, part of sharing, Um, stories like this is doing God's work. And so I would just, you know, as kingdom capitalists, I hope they don't get conflicted with, well, I'm just building a business for money. It's bigger than that. It's not for money. It's for people. And the platform that business can give you in in many ways can be more powerful for the kingdom because non-believers, when a pastor talks to them, they may put the walls up. You know, when the the guy at the charity or lady at charity talks to them, they may think, I just want my money or whatever, but when an executive is just sharing their stories or talking about their walk with Christ, they may let those walls down. They may you know, be vulnerable to listen and, and hear things without the walls being up. And so I would just encourage, because I used to really struggle with that, and I used to struggle with how good is good enough, and i got to do more, and i got to do more, and i got to do more, and ne- it's never enough, because I always know I can do more, so God's got to be mad at me. And, and then when all of a sudden I understood how my, that, that he loves me, he died for me. And I shifted from trying to please an angry God, and I realized he loves me. And once I have accepted that, I now end up doing more good than I did then. But it doesn't come from an impure place where then I was trying to check the box. I was a good boy today. I did a lot for the kingdom. That was me measuring myself against others. And I would either go down two roads, right? I would either have pride, like, yeah, I'm doing real good compared to these people. Or I would go the other road with apathy, like, how good is good enough? It's I can always do more. It's never enough. So what's the point? And so... Until I truly understood his love for me and his grace and what he did on the cross and that I can't earn my salvation, that I couldn't be good enough to earn it, I had to receive it. Once I got that and that light went off, it's changed everything for me. And I truly do more good now than I did then. But it doesn't come from the place. Back then, if I'm being honest, I did it for the wrong reasons. I did it to look a certain way. And there was no purity in that. I did it to check a box. And I gave to certain charities because I had the ability to do it because I felt good about it because it was the right thing to do but I wasn't really praying, is God in it? Or am I doing this for the right, pure reasons? And so that's been a shift in my life. So I just felt like I wanted to say that because in my early um, business career, I really struggled with building something and the success. And does that mean you know I'm not fulfilling my kingdom duties and all that? And then I've really grown into, this is my platform for yes. the kingdom. Yes. And, and I'm thankful for it, right? And yes. so I just, if anyone's struggling with that, I wanted to mention that too, because we didn't talk about that subject that God loves you and share his love with other people. Cause there's nothing more attractive than the gospel. That's
1: man. That's why we do the show right here. He that's that message like has got to get out to more people. Um, that this is a calling and that God can use you right where you are as a kingdom capitalist, right. Yeah. As a kingdom driven faith driven entrepreneur. Thanks for sharing that. I, um, uh, that that's Right on, man. And so, um, you know, I got so excited to start this podcast show today that typically I, we ask the Lord to just kind of bless our time. And so um, I totally forgot to do that because I was just so excited to, to bring you in. And so maybe to close up, I would just love kind of in that vein uh, that you just shared, would you just pray for our listeners sure. um, that God might give them that perspective, that they might be motivated by that grace? And uh, that, that would be really awesome.
0: Well, first of all, Lord, you know I, I thank you for the time today with Ellis and everyone listening to this podcast. Lord, I pray that that you are seen through it. I pray that you're you're, you're used through it, and I pray that the messages and the and the and everything done in my life and bless us with um, is shared, and I and I pray that it's multiplied. And I pray for boldness in the people that hear this to share their story, to share what God's done in their life. I pray that they learn that. You never seem you never seem to um, be too late, but you're never early either. But you do always show up, and bad things come to good, and that and that you're a loving father, and that even when we're in the ditch, even when we're dealing with the most difficult times, that you're our dad, and you want us to crawl up in your lap and love on us, and that and that there's no better feeling in the world than having a father like you that loves us unconditionally, that sent his son to die for us, um, and I just pray you bless these people. I pray you bless them in their business. I pray you give them the the peace of knowing who they are in Christ, knowing that they can boast in their weakness, knowing that that everything you've done for them is all they need, that they don't need anything else, that, that it's within them already. And I just pray you bless them and their families and their business, and we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.
1: Hey, I hope you enjoyed this show today. If you want to learn more about our community, you're going to want to visit us at kingdomcapitalist.co. There you can find info on our private mastermind. And even subscribe to our newsletter to get updates on new shows. And last but not least, land opportunities to get private trainings and coaching calls with the guests of this show. If you're enjoying this show, please take a minute to leave us a five-star review and also share this with a friend. We'll see you next time.